Hello, hello, peace lovers and peacemakers. This is Sarah Jamshidi. Welcome to Peace Mindedly, a program where we feature peaceful bridge makers. Here with Martin Rochsefad, we want to welcome you to our program. You know that we are live streaming our program every Tuesday at 12 noon on many social media channels on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Periscope, and other social media. And then you know that the initiative that we, we've taken on special with Peace Mindedly is Peace Journalism. So how to frame stories in a way that to be constructive and more meaningful stories for, for the audience that we hope to reach out. For that matter if you share the same program on your timeline you are helping us out with our peace journals initiative today's conversation particularly is an important conversation for me if you've been hearing our show or watching our show you know that i'm from iran and then before i left iran basically i forced to leave iran i was working for zan newspaper zan in farsi means woman and then Zan newspaper was one of the uh, was the only it's not one of the was the on, first and only daily periodicals a newspaper who was published for women by women about women it was a newspaper daily paper in iran a muslim nation and we were basically covering stories of women in the region which was middle east and also muslim women around the world and for that matter we were so proud so proud of the work that we were doing and uh, and then uh, honestly almost all the major network channels and media channels were covering us networks like CNN and MSNBC the Reuters Associated Press and um, name it Al Sharq Wasat and many many uh, newspapers and delegates basically were coming in and out of the newsroom just fascinated by the work uh, we were doing in that particular newsroom the leader of the newspaper was Faiza Hashemi Rafsanjani daughter of the former reformist president of Iran Some much was going on in Iran in terms of covering women leadership muslim women leadership in many spheres in politics in politics in social in economy in many many areas and then what happens was when i emigrated to the united states <laughs> unbelievably something was happening that i could not comprehend almost anyone anyone who knew i was from iran was asking one particular question and it was before nuclear program after nuclear program i ended up getting uh, two questions but before then it was one question and that one question was about women appearance and about women oppression and i was i was um so i mean I could I couldn't believe that this only one question people people are asking me and at the end the verdict was always okay so how pitiful you are in in the muslim nations that that really bothered me that really bothered me so i had to go through extended answers for those who really wanted to listen to the to the answer explaining okay no it was not the case this happened and the, the middle east is like that and the muslim women are like that and so forth and so on so then i was just going through lots of explanation and then you know what i am so glad that we are in a space that things has been shifting and shifting uh, by the meaningful work of women who are putting forward and one of those amazing women that we have in our program is our dear professor Shahla Hairi so i'm bringing Shahla into our studio Shahla Hairi is an associate professor of anthropology and a former director of the women's studies program at Boston University 
Ha'eri is one of the pioneers of Iranian anthropology and has produced cutting-edge studies of Iran, Pakistan, and the Muslim world. In her latest book, The Unforgettable Queens of Islam, Succession, Authority, Gender, Ha'eri looks at extraordinary lives and legacy of a few Muslim women leaders and rulers within different Muslim countries. Very welcome, very welcome, Shahla, to our program. Thank you. I'm very pleased. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. With your permission and with the tradition in our show, I call my guests with our, with their first name. I know you are Dr. Hoyeri, but I'm going to call you Shahla. That would be okay. my pleasure. Excellent. Thank you so much. Shahla, tell us uh, what is the story behind the book and why you decided you would like to write such an amazing book? <laughs> well, thank you for having me, um, Sarah June. Um, just like you, you know, I mean, I have been living in this country for a long time. And without fail, the question has been, why do all Muslim women have to wear a veil? I mean, as a, as a teacher, as a professor, I'd be standing in front of my students unveiled, talking to them about amazing work that women are doing back there. And the next question I get, why do all Muslim women have to wear the veil? So one was just to challenge this whole assumption of, you know, that first of all, every woman wears the veil. And second of all, that every woman who wears the veil is miserable, victimized, inferior, uh, unagenting, and what have you. But what gave me specifically uh, an idea to write about this book is continuation of my work on women, law, religion, and as an anthropologist, I'm always interested in how things work in everyday life. What are the practices of women? What are the experiences of women? Not just what the law says, but what the law does and how do people use these laws as a way of making their lives meaningful, either to put up sometimes with oppression or other times to engage with it or challenge it or negate it. First of all, you know, personally, I'm from a background, a family uh, of very professional, educated women, independent women. My grand paternal grandmother was wife of an Ayatollah, a well-known Ayatollah, who had six sons and five daughters, uh, four daughters. All these women were quite accomplished. I have tons of cousins. Uh, many of them have uh, PhDs. They're physicians, they're doctors, they're professors. As a matter of fact, my youngest sister is a professor. Uh, so, you know, I was brought up within the family, within a milieu that is that encourages independent thinking and being active in and in your professional life. But also specifically, I was interested uh, when I went to Pakistan for the first time and I saw the election of Benazir Bhutto. I happened to be there when she got elected and I had never seen anything like it. The, 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 the amount of rose petals that were thrown on her uh, motorcades, the way that she was treated by people. And that was very important. She was the first democratic, democratically elected uh, woman prime minister in the Muslim world, and actually in the, in the world at that time, not very many people were like her. And then again, another event that happens was in early 2000, when I went back to Iran, and I found out that there were these women who nominated themselves to run for the presidency in the Islamic Republic of Iran. And it was absolutely zero news about them in the newspapers and media in the U.S. So basically, Ahla, I don't want to interrupt you, but basically we're talking about the personal life of someone who has had the wealth of women independence on her background. We are talking about so witnessing women in political uh, leadership. And then yet again, we do not see any of those in the news. Yes, absolutely. Or if we do, it's just buried in like page 10, not in page one, you know, I expected to read about these women who nominated themselves for presidency in Iran in the, you know, pages of New York Times. I read New York Times every day, nothing about them, just a little news about just one woman running for the election. It is the same assumptions, dominant assumptions that you just very rightly referred to at the beginning of your programs. 
because that dominant narrative about women on agency, women inferiority, women lack of uh, engagement with their societies and with the uh, political system, that just doesn't allow them to think beyond that narrative, that you know, image they have of Muslim women. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then you decided you are going to contradict that kind of stereotype you wrote about queens of Islam. So it's six women. Tell me how come you decided to pick these uh, six women? Why? That's a very good question. I often ask that question. Uh, you could choose a lot more. But you see, I didn't want to write a survey book. I didn't want to say like there are 10 queens. I wanted to give their extraordinary lives and legacies, write about them, the stories of these women. But specifically, the first two chapters of my book includes the story of the Queen of Sheba, which involves revelations in the Quran, Muslims' highest source of authority. And the second story in the book involves the life and legacy of Aisha, the beloved of Prophet Muhammad, one of the wives of Prophet Muhammad, uh, known as the mother of the faithful, who got engaged in the act of succession. You know, she was very active in, I mean, she had the courage of her convictions. She thought that whoever who uh, succeeds the Prophet Muhammad should have certain qualities. Um, Well, she supported some of her own cousins to run, or the in-laws to run for the, you know, to make them, to become the, a successor to the Prophet Muhammad. So these two women, you know, and of course uh, she, uh, her, her, her uh, defeat in the Battle of the Camel necessitated, it seems, tradition, a hadith that is allegedly attributed to the Prophet Muhammad who says something to the effect of, if a country allows or if a nation allows a woman to become a ruler, then it will not see any salvations. So these two sources of authority, the revelations of the Queen of Sheba on the one hand, the tradition of the Prophet Muhammad on the other hand, at the intersection of these two, I wanted to see what happened because historically we do have women who have become the queen. So I wanted to say what other factors were involved, what other source of authority was involved that enabled this woman to to come to power. And that was a father's support for his daughter. That patriarchal support is very important. Do we have the same for Queen Sheba? Does his, her father support it? I think she, it, it did, according to what I, what I read in well, the book. Two ways you can t- talk about it. To begin with, she was supported by God, right? Uh-huh. God put her there. God gave her a mighty throne, Asha Azim, right? So she was supported by none other than the highest source of authority, Almighty Allah. But the Muslim chroniclers and biographers have created a father for her. And they say mm-hmm. that he happened to be a king of Yemen who married a jinn princess. You know, he didn't marry a normal human being. He had to have uh, a supernatural being, a jinn, so that the product of that marriage is a woman who is half supernatural. So her power, in other words, is not so legitimate because she was half from a woman who happened to be a jinn and a father who happened to be a king. So she did that, whether you know you talk about it in legendary forms or in historical forms. Excellent. So something is happening. Do you have the echo on your end? No, it's echo in my end. That's okay. So I hope that I can manage this. But um, so who are the other four women? So we have uh, Queen Razia, we have Benazir Bhutto, we have two others. So tell me who are the other four women? Okay, so I was interested in a historical perspective and also a cross-cultural perspective. So for medieval period, I chose um, a woman from Yemen. Uh, who happened to be an Ismaili Muslim, uh, Queen Erwa, also known as Sayyida Hurra, the independent um, free lady. Um, and the second medieval woman is, as you mentioned, is Sultan Razia Sultan, or Queen, so, uh, Queen of India in 13th century. Um, uh, Queen Erwa was at the end of, you know, from 11th century to 
12th century, beginning of 12th century. And he she actually ruled for a long, long time, you know, almost 71 years, some of which she was a queen consort, but effectively she was in control and power. For modern queens, I have Benazir Bhutto, as I said, because I have done work in Pakistan. I've written a, a book on Pakistan. And also the first and the only so far, well, not the only right now, but the most important president, head of the state uh, in Indonesia, and that's Megawati Sukarno Putri of Indonesia. Yes. And um, so here's the issue. When we have a woman as a political leader, do we gain or what do we gain or what do we lose in terms of um, a societal or economical perspective? Or I'm, I'm wondering, probably they have to put out a big fight to to win over um the this uh, this phenomenon the political phenomenon within their own country well when we're talking about medieval and modern times we are talking about two different political systems mm -hmm. in medieval time it was an autocratic uh, system of a uh, political system you had the the king or the sultan or the caliph you had the court the royal court was the center of all activities and women lived in the so-called harem and there were many of them because these were polygynous. These were uh, palaces where the sultan had several wives and many kids, many mm -hmm. boys and many girls. So it depended on the relationship between uh, the, the, uh, a woman and her father and also the absence of any co competent male uh, uh, successor, right? So she had, they had it easier times because their father recognized their uh, talent and they showed their charisma. So, and once the father supported them, then uh, unlike what many people may think, the religious elite, the religious establishment didn't make any objections. We have no um, documents, no nothing, you know, no news about whether or not the religious institution uh, made any objections to these women's leadership, right? But when we come to modern times, modern, you know, with Benazir and Megawati specifically, about whom I have written, we're dealing with a system, a political system that is presumably democratic. We have institutions, we have constitutions that have, they have to, people have to vote, right? So Benazir Bhutto uh, particularly was very much loved by her father. And of course, her father, unfortunately, got um, hanged and was overthrown. But she um, was thrown into jail. She was uh, tortured, abused by uh, General Zia for a long time. But eventually she was released. She went to London and she became uh, the leader of her own party. And her mother, in that sense, was very supportive of her initially. And she came back, she ran for the, the office of the prime minister. And unlike what many people think, she had tremendous support. She has such a popular support that she actually won the election. Had it not been for the male politicians making a coalitions and also trying to actively recruit the religious parties to fight against Benazir, her vote in the parliament would have been a lot higher. So she had the support, the, pop, the popular support. So did Megawati Sukarno Putri. So this is, we have to understand the differences in the political system. Yes, differences yes. in political system. But yes. here is, uh, as I'm listening to you, at the beginning of the program, I was giving example of Faiza, Faiza Hashemi Rafsanjani. And I, as I'm listening to you, there there is the same parallels that's running within their own family because Hashemi Rafsanjani had about, I think, three daughters or four. And then Faiza among them was the brave the most fearless and then supported by the father and was able to do so many things, especially in favor of women back in Tehran. So, so I'm, 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 I'm listening that their father's support has been um, significant. If there was no support, there was no, no improvement in, within, for their status. And that is so smart of you. I mean, so perceptive to make the parallels and to draw the parallels between Faiza. And I agree with you. Faiza had other sisters, but none of them were as charismatic as, as Faiza was, right? Um, 
but she had the support of an uh, interesting patriarch, right? So mm -hmm. that was very important. And that's what we need to understand. All these women who get into positions of power are from the upper classes. They're from feudal background. They're from the royal families. It's, you know, for men, it's a little different thing. You know, some men could actually um, come to power, particularly in the older uh, days in feudal societies, and they could fight against uh, any of the contenders to the throne and win the throne by uh, the crown by, by force. For women, this didn't happen for women. What source of authority that enabled women to get into power, to create a platform for their uh, authority was in fact the father. So that's what I call, well, initially I had called it the patriarchal paradox, but it's really not paradox, patriarchal paradox. It's a pragmatism of patriarchy that realizes how it can just be, you know, fluid in, in terms of supporting someone whose authority, in fact, is higher than the other ones. So uh, drawing a parallel again here uh, against my own life, I always say that my dad was the first feminist I yeah. know because he just supported uh, me, my sister, and women in the family. And then I think it's exactly to the point that you are making. But do we do we need to have men who are in favor of uh, women's rights and women's movements so then we can see more women in power? Well, you see, the structure of power is such that it is controlled by, by men, right? So in order for women to get into those positions of powers, they do need to have male support. And many women do, uh, as we just mentioned, you mentioned about your father, my father, and I mentioned about my grandfather, you know, who was an Ayatollah who never told us that we should cover our hair. So he was a quite an enlightened uh, Ayatollah. We all, you know, his daughters traveled to Europe and so did we. But it is important. We live in now, of course, in this day and age, we live in a society that uh, it has laws, uh, regulations, institutions. Of course, up until now, in most countries, these uh, institutions, these uh, the laws have been to women's disfavor. So for women to get into the positions of power, they need to have male allies. And their brothers, their husbands, their uh, fathers, their sons could be very important and influential in terms of helping them to get into positions of power. Excellent. So in your opinion, uh, from the studies that you've done, we need to have probably men who are more in favor of women. And then what else do we need to see to see the changes in, in women political leadership? Very good. Sustain, sustain women's activity and collective activities, because not all women think the same way. Not all women desire the same thing. Not all women have the same objectives. Right. Let's take what's happening in the U.S. right now. Um, we are confronted with a woman who was just voted in to become a Supreme Court justice. Now, many women are worried about what may happen to the rights that women have gained in terms of abortion, because many people are against abortion in this country, right? So we don't know how the laws, and the laws are always there to allow certain things or not allow other things to criminalize criminalize certain behavior or to make other behaviors um, acceptable. So um, I think it is important for women, again, understanding that women is not do not constitute a monolithic category, but for women to really gain a more democratic uh, society, a more egalitarian society, is to find common cause with each other, with other women, and common cause with other men, men in power, men in, you know, their relatives and kins, and um, systematically work for a better uh, and more egalitarian, equitable society. But would you think that we may have a female president in Iran by any chance? Sure, why not? I mean, we, sh we should never think that these things are far-fetched. If women cannot become into power, it's not that women are incapable of, it's because of the laws that prevent them for whatever reason. You know, the laws are supported by the nature of men and women, the, the, you know, the divine laws and all that. And all of that are made up by people who have been in power. When I made my video documentary on women um, 
who had nominated themselves as a presidential candidate in Iran in 2001, these women were just extraordinary. I mean, you could disagree with their platform or their policies, but they had uh, self-confidence. They had the uh, convictions about what they can do. And without exceptions, there were six of them that I interviewed. They said, why can't I be- become the president of uh, a country like Iran? In fact, one of them, whom I was just going to mention at the beginning of the, our conversation, was this woman who had, you know, was tightly veiled, but very impressive woman. And she was so well versed in the Quran and the tradition of Prophet Muhammad. She supported all her ideas by hadith or, you know, revelations. And she made a reference to the Queen of Sheba. She said, we have in the Quran a woman who was supported, who was a sovereign. And that's very important for us. Why can't we become like her? So just a few weeks ago, the Guardian Council said that, you know, women can run for president. But that's, that is silly because women have challenged this very same article, Article 115 of Iranian Constitution, that says who can or cannot become a president. It says nothing about women cannot becoming president. What it does use is the word rejale siyasi, political elite. And the first person who challenged this law was Khanum Azam Talagani in 1996, who said, I am, we are a member of this, um, you know, political elite. So why can't I run for presidency? So now, you know, this is the cheap publicity. The Guardian Council says, yeah, women can't. Before they tried to keep it hush-hush, but now they say can, but doesn't change any of the dynamics. Excellent. Stay put, please. You are listening to Peace-Minded Leaders, a chance that you're also watching Peace-Minded a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. So we are in our houses. I am in my house and everyone else in their houses because of the pandemic. And sometimes they are some unexpected things happen. It's just like today. For, for some reason, I'm speaking in my, uh, in my microphone and there is an echo echo just uh, so loud i hope that i can take care of this with my machines here if i don't i need to refresh my page and come back don't go anywhere i'm here i'll be back in about two or three minutes but just bear with me but for now we are good hopefully that we stay good for the rest of the program we are live streaming our conversation on Facebook, on YouTube, on LinkedIn, on Periscope, and many social media channels. If you would like to ask questions from our guest, please do so because we featured your questions on our program. Also, write to us, editor at goldtone.com. We feature your questions here in the program. And then we are on the second season for Peace Mindedly every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific standard time we come here for talking with our guests about about politics about women leadership so many interesting subjects the subjects the theme is always based on peace and how my guests are doing meaningful work to connect nations and cultures and people by being peaceful bridge makers so our last program is going to be on november 24th and we come back in February again every Tuesdays again at 12 noon with new programs and new guests. For next episode, Martin is going to interview Jessica Gudo, author of um, After the Last Border, Two Families and the Story of Refuge in America. It's going to be an interesting interview because Martin is doing it and second of all, we are on the day of the election. By then, I'm hoping that you have already casted your vote and you're just here comfortably uh, sitting and listening to our show or or you are planning to do so. And please do that because it's, it's an important election. So today I'm posting a personal story about how I basically galvanized and mobilized the, my whole family back in Tehran to take them 
went to the poll stations and to have them to vote. It was about probably between 28 to 30 people, even more, that I, I would take them to the polls to, to vote. So vote is very important. We are deciding about the future of our political life on national level. And if it's when it's the United States, we are deciding probably for the rest of the world. So this this election is very important. And I'm hoping that we all cast our votes, inshallah. And uh, after that, I'm talking with Sertash Sehik. Sehikoglu. You know, I speak Turkish. I supposed to pronounce the name much better than this, but but there you go. When I'm doing it in English, so everything changes. But Sertash is a researcher, and with Sertash, we are going to talk about women desire in Turkey. Sertash has studied Turkish women quest to demand their rights for desire and pleasure. For that matter, women are working out to look attractive, to look fantastic, and then and then she is basically studied. She studied the phenomenon and we are going to talk about how this new phenomenon is going on in the Muslim world. So desire and for women to pay attention to their personal desires. For this hour, we are talking with Shahla Ha'eri, an associate professor of anthropology and former director of the Women's Studies Program at Boston University. Ha'eri has been studying Muslim women's lives within their social and political environments for uh, quite some time. Law of Desire, Temporary Marriage in Shia Iran, and No Shame for the Sun, Lives of Professional Pakistani Women are her other books. She also produced a video documentary, Mrs. President, Women and Political Leadership in Iran. She interviewed six women. So Shahla, it's running a theme throughout your work. So it's six queens, six women, all the six ones. I, I What's the magic behind six? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I have been asked that question and Maybe it is a magic number. Maybe there is something mystical about it, but I really can't put my fingers on that. I can't articulate okay. it. I, I, I take your answer for that. Okay, so and for this book, you are, here's what's happening. You're studying the challenges that women are facing within their own respected countries. And then we are talking about Benazir Bhutto in Pakistan. We are talking about medieval uh, women. We are talking about modern women. I wonder, are there similarities between these uh, women leaders that you have studied? Excellent question. Well, there are more uh, similarities, let's say, uh, among the modern queens or modern leaders than among the medieval ones. Well, to begin with, as we have been just talking, uh, the most important theme that runs through this chapter is father-daughter relationship. So in that sense, they all share that, that relationship. They are from um, very prominent families. They have an excellent relations with their fathers. The fathers are national heroes like, you know, Sukarno in Indonesia, Zulfakar Bhutto in uh, Pakistan, or uh, Il Tutmish in India in early 12th, 13th century. So that relationship is, is very important. But another common factor among, among them is their um, charisma, their personal ambitions and charisma. They are ambitious women. They want to be active and they have certain ideas about how things ought to run. Queen Arwa of Yemen was a very powerful, wise, astute woman who was running at the time when in Northern Africa, North Africa, in Egypt, particularly the Fatimid, the Ismaili Fatimid dynasty were in power. And they were the most, one of the most powerful dynasties at the time competing with the Abbasid dynasty in Baghdad. But so she was in Yemen, but she was a follower of the Ismailis and she managed to keep them as an arm's length, but at the same time, being very uh, diplomatic in her relationship with them. So I think their important qualities that these women had was their ambitions, their charisma, but also they had a good acumen. They knew, they seemed to know how to deal, how to engage with the structures of power, with other powerful men, with the military, 
with the religious elite. Not that everybody was supportive of them, but they realized that they have to make alliances. They need to have networks of support and alliances. Do you have a story of any of these uh, women leaders that you could share with us? Ooh, <laughs> uh, there are so many stories. Uh, well, the most fascinating story is that of the Queen of Shiva. Mm-hmm. That's more legendary, and I hope people would go and read it because she is popular among all religions, including not only just not not only she's not only popular among the the Jews and the Christians and the Muslims, but also in Ethiopia, because you know in Ethiopia they one of the legends or the historical assumption is that the ruling dynasty was descended from Solomon. Uh, from Jerusalem. Um, you know, Benazir, I think it's uh, really an extraordinary person uh, in terms of her dedication to her people. I looked at her life more through a mystical angle, uh, like the characters, the mystical, legendary uh, Sufi characters in uh, Pakistan. And what is interesting in Pakistan as opposed to Iran is that in a mystical tradition, it's the woman who is a seeker. It's the woman who uh, goes on a journey to find her beloved and to become uh, united with the beloved. Unlike in Iran, mostly it's a man who goes on on a quest. She really did seem to have this unwavering love for her people. She wanted to come back, to go back. She knew of all the uh, problems that were on her way, but then she persisted. She went there and unfortunately she got killed. I covered Benazir Bhutto. I know that she loved, loved, loved Pakistan. She, I mean, great respect for the people, great respect for uh, the country and for the culture and for everything. But since we are talking about charisma, we are talking about powerful women, wouldn't it be fair to assume that they also loved power? Oh, Benazir, sure. <laughs> yeah. If you didn't have that. I mean, power, power is, is an endemic, essential part of any relationship. Anybody, two sisters, parents, teachers, uh, people have, I mean, power is embedded in the relationships. Now, how you operationalize power and then you gain authority is something else. Not everybody has that. So Benazir, yes, of course. I mean, she competed with her brother. Of course, her brother, uh, older brother competed with her. Of course they did. They, one of the objectives they have is that they want to maintain their power and you know, extend their power base or sol- uh, consolidate their power base. All of them, Queen Erwa in, in Yemen, she was a very powerful person and she was very authoritative and she managed to um, uh, avenge her father-in-law who was badly beheaded. She did the same thing of the tribal leader who had killed her father-in-law she had no uh, pity. So yes, if this, of course they won. But, but you know, power, as I said, is embedded in our relationships. Everybody has that. But what you do with it is a different matter. But here's the issue. If it was not for the magic number six, who else would you uh, include in your women leaders and in your queens? Very good question. Immediately, I would say, uh, and I intended initially to do uh, the two um, prime ministers of Bangladesh. Very interesting case. It's a little different from what I have argued in my book because those two women initially had a patriarchal support. Sheikh Hasina had her father's support. Uh, Khalida Zia had her husband's support. Sometimes it is the husband, not always it's the father. Uh, so, and then after you know that initial support that they got, but now the power goes back and forth between the two ladies, right? So they would be very important uh, people. But I would also like to look into Africa. One of the things we neglect to do, and I really would have liked to do it, and I didn't get a chance to do it because I had, you know, limited time and limited number, um, to look into Africa. Of course, you know, the Queen concerts in Africa have been very powerful. In Mali, Mansa Musa, you know, it's one of the most powerful, the richest person on earth at the time. So he, his wife was very powerful. Many other women were powerful. In Senegal a few years ago, uh, there was a woman prime minister who I, I believe later on became a president or maybe prime minister for a year or so, not too long. So it is important to be a lot more inclusive. But 
uh, I would have liked to include someone from Africa. Yes, yes, for sure. Okay, the unforgettable queens of Islam. We are talking about these queens and you depicted uh, these six powerful women in this book and they are fascinating stories of each and every single woman. Yet again, I think it's the book, it's a scholarly book. It's for uh, academia. Yet again, it's a kind of book that you read and you enjoy. You enjoy of the storyline, your joy of the history behind behind the book. And I just enjoyed, you know, just learning in depth about some of these women that you picked. But in your opinion, why do you think that we should read this book? Oh, very good question. That's an excellent question. Uh, first of all, I'm very happy you enjoyed, uh, you re read it and you enjoyed it. In fact, that's what I say in my book, that I want to write this book for a wider audience. Of course, I'm a professor. I teach. I have to satisfy my colleagues, too, you know, who would then say, oh, this is just a popular book. Uh, so, but I try to strike a balance between the, the two perspectives or the two objectives that I have. But also, um, one of the reasons I kept the number minimal and happened to be six was to really write in depth about what these women did, you know, not just quick story about them. I wanted to look at them differently. About every single one of these women, books have been written. So to write one chapter is really not enough, but I wanted to at least have that sense of telling the stories of these, um, of these women. And, and the, what was the second part of your question? Like, so, yeah, it was I, about why do we need to, to read this book? But here's, here's uh, uh, do you think, you, you, would you like to continue or I can go to my next question? And let me just say why I think it is important to have this book. Because, as I mentioned, in fact, in my conclusion in the book, that every time I talked about women queens or women leaders, you know, in this country, of course, even sometimes to Pakistanis, to Iranians, and they said, what? Were there any women leaders? Um, and so, you know, we need to know our history. And many women were very powerful in their communities, as I mentioned, like my paternal grandmother, but no, nothing is written about them. And the assumption is that, as we talked at the beginning of the program, that these women are inferior, they are uh, passive, they are secluded. Uh, the assumption is that if they wear the veil, they lose their brain. And these women are, you know, quite um, active and uh, powerful women. So I wanted people to realize, to have another a picture of Muslim women. I mean, women behind the throne have always had powers. But I wanted to talk about those women who are in the position of power, who are wearing the crown, so to speak, who sit on the throne. So I think it is important to, particularly for us Muslims, to be aware of that. As we explain it uh, throughout the program, at the beginning of the program and throughout the program, that uh, there are many examples of powerful Muslim women. You are talking about that. And uh, as I explained at the beginning of the program, Zan newspaper, we were writing about that. But the reason that we are not hearing or uh, hearing is or seeing is because has not been talked about. So what do you think media needs to do? What changes would you like to see in media? So then we see more examples of women, Muslim women leaders. Well, to begin with, I'm very happy to see you. You're doing precisely that to introduce another vision of women. You and Martina are doing excellent work. So thank you so both so very much. I think by and large, this society, people are becoming a lot more aware of the, uh, you know, the warped image they have had of Muslim women. It might just still be propagated by Fox News, shall we say, but um, we have Ilhan Omar, wears beautiful scarf, and she is so sharp and smart. We have Rashida Talib. These are more women who have become visible and vocal, but there are tons of women like them, like, you know, as I mentioned yourself. So the point of it is to constantly be vigilant and talk about that and do not allow such uh, image of women to uh, form the dominant narrative in this country. Another thing we need to do also is, unfortunately, as some Muslim societies are becoming more and more caught in the grips of, shall we say, fundamentalism or Islamists, and there is a backlash against women who are becoming 
more vocal, visible, active, um, engaged professional. So we need, you know, we seem to be in a, a in a hard rock between a hard rock and a wall, or whatever the expression is. So we need to be aware of these dualities and not to give into one or to be cowed by the other one. The unfortunate part is that the America has the bullhorn, so it still has the biggest um, platform to talk about or to propagate this idea of women uh, inferiority of Muslim women. But Muslim women are challenging that, uh, and uh, the the future is bright. Excellent segment that you just made right now, and that is uh, about uh, the Muslim women in the U.S. So we see that at least here's uh, I give you an example. So about about 12 years, not 12 years ago, but eight nine years ago, when I was putting Muslim women on Google and hit the image, the image on the Google page was all the dark women, a niqab, a burqa cover ugly so unhappy just so sad uh, women and now that I just for the sake of practice I did the same thing again uh, yesterday I put Muslim women and the pictures were different the pictures were of course they were uh, whale and they were uh, som- sometimes niqab sometimes burqa but there was also happy women very stylish w- uh, women with a hijab or with a scarf and it was uh, the, the, the picture was different so i'm i'm seeing that things are changing the narrative is changing and then f- because of the work of the muslim women like yourself and other scholars that putting forward and Muslim women activism, things has changed. But 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 how about in the uh, political leadership? I think that uh, still Islamophobia is a real, real issue in the United States. Oh, for sure. For sure. And here is again, you know, speaking of the unforgettable queens of Islam, leadership matters. Leadership is very important. The role of leaders are very important. Just as we had very interesting women getting into the Congress in this country, including AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Talib, um, Ayanna Prisley here in my state, very, and, you know, uh, Katie, uh, I forgot her last name, in California, very, very interesting, smart women. So then you'll see the backlash against them is a lot stronger. You know, you hear from our leaders and some of the powerful media who are trying to malign them, particularly angry they are at um, powerful Muslim women. I mean, you know, like uh, an uppity powerful Muslim woman is a lot more threatening because it clearly uh, challenges the stereotypes that is out there. So there is a lot that is out there, unfortunately. But but as you said, it's very nice. You know, you look at the images of Muslim women; it's a lot more diverse, it's a lot more colorful. And you know, Muslim women are taking the lead themselves. It's unfortunate that in places like Iran or even in Pakistan, it didn't used to be like that, or some other places uh, in the Muslim countries, these kinds of stereotypes are reinforced. Because the kind of women we get into the parliament uh, in Iran, for example, I mean, some might be more independent than others, but none really stays uh, uh, stands for women's rights. And in many of these societies, the leaders, the powers try to uh, reinforce the idea of veiling for women. And unfortunately, women who get into the positions or allowed to get into the positions support that idea. I don't think necessarily there's anything wrong with wearing a veil if you choose to do that. So, but forced veiling, it's it's a problem. And anytime you force the group of people to relinquish their rights, if they don't want to do that, that is oppression, that is domination. So uh, I do not support that, but hopefully we'll get to have more women, Muslim women to get elected into the Congress in this country. I I'm all about good fight and then we are going hopefully we are we are engaging in a good fight stay with me Shahla yes it's one issue here on my end on my microphone that I couldn't take care of that one, one of my fears was I refresh my page and then I just mess up with everything on my end so therefore I'm just bearing with the issue if you are hearing lots of echo and background it's because something is going on here that I could 
couldn't fix it during the program. But uh, we are we are moving forward because this is what we do. Issues happen, and then we we try to do our best. For this hour, we are talking with Shahla Ha'eri, professor of inter- anthropology at Boston University and author of Unforgettable Queens of Islam: Succession, Authority, and Gender. I do have the book here with me. You can purchase the book on goldtoon.com. We do have the book available on our website and also the book is on many online shopping platforms so you can purchase the book that way. Please share our video on your timeline because we are covering peace. We are talking about peace and our initiative is Peace Journalism. We do we do appreciate your support and yes, at the end of the, every program, I ask my guests to share something meaningful about peace, about kindness and about compassion. I am going to Shahla to share her thoughts with us and again my apologies it's the echo issue you you are not hearing it but it's on my end and then I'm, i i try my best to take care of that but here is your chance please tell us what you would like what you would like us to know about peace and kindness well the first thing um well first of all let me thank you and martin for doing such a fantastic job and for asking good questions peace is very important Humanity is very important. One of the first things that comes to my mind is a very famous poem by Sadi, Sheikh Sadi, the 13th century Iranian poet, uh, philosopher, mystic, that says something like, you know, and I'm going to say it in Persian first, and then I hope to translate that. Of course, you can never translate the beauty of a poem. Uh, it says, Bani Odam Azoye Yektigaran, Kedar Ofarinesh Zeyekoharan. Basically, what it is saying, Saadi, in 13th century, that the humanity is part of the same body. So when part of this body is hurt, the other parts are um, also in pain. And if you do not understand this pain of the humanities, what's happening in Yemen, what's happening in Bangladesh, what's happening in Iran, what's happening in this country uh, with the people who are suffering from hunger, from uh, violence, you know, the the blacks and the browns and the Muslims in this country, then uh, it's really not proper to um, call yourself a part of this humanities, a human. So I think Sheikh Saadi, you know, the Iranian poet in the 13th century said it best. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you both very much. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was, And the book was really amazing. And uh, it was really enlightening talk because I am in history and this talk was again something that added to my knowledge so thank you so thank much thank you so much thank you i really appreciate your program i appreciated the time you have taken and all the good questions you ask so good luck with that uh keep me informed and um i'd love to be in touch and look at more of your program Absolutely. thank you so much thank you so thank much you. Khoda Hafiz. Khoda Hafiz. Khoda Hafiz. Khoda Hafiz.